Over the past decade and a half, the field of communication and media studies in Chile has grown considerably, in particular through the work of a young generation of scholars who have become uh, very well known in the international space. How did this happen? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Teresa Correa in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcikowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Teresa Correa, who's associate professor in the School of Communications at Universidad de Diego Portales in Santiago de Chile. Uh, she's been there since uh, 2012, first as an assistant professor, and since 2017 as an associate professor. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, she was also Tinker visiting professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And since 2019, in addition to her professorial duties, she's director of the research center CYCLOS, the research center in communication, literature, and social observation, also at Universidad Diego Portales. Teresa did her undergraduate at Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile, where uh, she took a BA in journalism and social information, and then did her graduate work at the University of Texas at Austin with a master's degree in Latin American studies first, and then a PhD in communication. Teresa is one of the most prolific scholars in the region, probably one of the leading authorities in issues of social inequality, certification skills in relation to uh, digital media. She has published more than 40 journal articles in the top journals in the field, uh, has been highly and widely cited and has received many, many grants both from uh, national foundations in Chile and also international organizations uh, in uh, throughout the Americas, actually. So, uh, Teresa, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much. Thank you for such a nice introduction. Thank you. I think this is a great idea to have the, this café or this podcast. Uh, so I'm glad to be talking to you. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you very much. Most deserve everything that I said. So my friend, how did it all begin? How was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? I would say that it started in my college years. Um, here when you're doing your college year, when you're doing your college years, you have the opportunity to be TA teaching assistant. That doesn't happen much in, in the US, for example. But when you're a junior or a senior, 
um, you can be TA. So I I was TA. I I I liked the academic life, um, but I was studying journalism. So in my final years of of my college degree, um, I did a student exchange. Um, so I didn't have the English, so I had to study English to do the TOEFL. Um, so that was important for me because I wanted to go abroad and experience um, being living abroad. Um, and I went to Vancouver, um, Canada. And there I took classes in other social science departments, in sociology and in political science. And that like deepened the interest in 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 being a, a, an and pursuing an academic life. But when I came back, I I started working at, at a newspaper, but with this dream that I wanted to pursue graduate studies. At that point, it was just a master, you know. Uh, but then, um, so I started working at a, at a newspaper. I worked there for three years, but with this plan of going back of going back and pursuing graduate studies. Um, in the middle, um, I met someone uh, who became my husband and we shared this same dream because we engaged and we started talking about this, uh, about these plans that we both had and we ended up doing them together. Um, so yeah, so that's how we um, I applied and I started um, doing, um, I started uh, doing a master's in Latin American studies because in the beginning, um, after I had been reporting in issues as social policy education, when I was a reporter, um, I was doing education, social policy, um, uh, stuff about international relations. So I thought that I wanted to do um, a master's in the beginning, but then a PhD in one of those fields, you know, in sociology or in public policy or in political science. Um, but then when I started uh, my master's as Latin in Latin American studies at the University of Texas at Austin, which is a great program that allowed me to to take different classes, you know, in social policy. I took classes on inequality in Latin America, in public policy, in sociology. I took these classes and I realized half of the way that a better approach for me at least um, was to integrate and not like break with my past or the career that I had built doing journalism and being a reporter, but integrate both. Um, and that's how I, I applied to the PhD, but with the idea of pursuing like inequalities and media representation in the beginning, and then inequalities and digital technologies. And, and now my research is a lot about public policies and policy making and digital technologies. So I incorporated this interest in education, in social policy, in public policy, with communication and, and media. Yeah, that's, I would say that that was my start. <laughs> Interesting, so, so you built on your work in journalism, you built on your focus on policy issues, the region, etc. So as, as you moved along, it seems that you kept adding and integrating rather than leaving behind, right? 
Yeah, exactly. That's why I I ended up doing. But but I have to admit that the process was not as straightforward or as easy in the process of decision making that that seems, you know. Of course, in the beginning, I thought that I was gonna like I was not gonna do journalism anymore, and I wanted to do other social sciences, but and. So I started like flirting with all these different um, areas, and and that process was tense, you know, and 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 making the decision of whether I come back to communication and how can I integrate all this interest and and build a career out of all this interest that 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 I had. So although it seems very linear, um, it was bumpy and and hard at times. Yeah. Okay. So, and how was in general the experience of being a graduate student in the U.S. coming from Latin America? Ay, what a good question. Um, I it was a good like I, I have to say that I started with the master in Latin American studies, uh, which you coming from Latin America, you would say, why do you want? to do a master in Latin American studies, but it provided me with this um, integral or, or more global perspective on the different issues of Latin America that you don't have when you, well, first when you're 20 something, um, and second, when you come from, from, from within one of the countries, you know? Um, but it was good. Like professionally, I took classes with great professors, um, and personally, that it's it was también. I was I was gonna say también too. It was also interesting. Um, we had fun. We created a group of of masters and PhD students. Um, it was fun, and and we. Um, and we did this journey uh, like side by side with this community um, of grad students. Um, it was fun. It was also um, challenging. Um, so that part was fun, but it was also challenge, challenging. You don't have the language. Um, and that's, um, you don't really have the language. You have some language, but you don't have, you're not an, an English speaking person. And, and that makes everything very challenging. Um, also, I would say as a woman in, in the beginning, um, I had like confidence issues uh, in terms of when I was a grad student and in a seminar in which they would say, Teresa, what do you think about uh, and this big question, and I would like come up with an answer, of course. But afterwards, I would say, was it right? Uh, was was I able to to under, like to did people understand what I was trying to say? I don't know. Like thinking about all that. Um, yeah. So in another language, with these initial confidence issues, um, yeah, things are challenging so it was fun but very challenging at the same time okay interesting now which university did you go to when you were in vancouver uba or uh, university of british columbia ubc sorry not UBA, ubc okay yeah. so how, how would you compare i mean you 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 know experience academic cultures in both the us and canada how, how do they compare 
in your experience, even though these are two particular institutions, but nonetheless. Um, wow, uh, it's, uh, uh, let me think. Canada, uh, it, well, it, it's it, like the, the things that the context are so different because, uh, because Austin and Texas has nothing to do with British Columbia, you know, and Vancouver. Um, so when I went to uh, Vancouver, I, I, in terms of the classes, that was my first experience of, of uh, for example, being in a class with three or 400 students, with having these group discussions, that then when I was a grad student, I had to lead, I had to lead those group discussions and everything, you know? So this environment was totally different, but it was, interesting enough to the point that I said I want to come back at least to North America and do graduate studies and this is what I want I really want that um like to know the diversity of of people and and exchange experiences with such a diverse group um was was very uh, interesting and fun then Austin is different Texas has this this uh, Latino um, background um, in which you feel like in which you feel part of it in a way you are not really because you're an international still but but you feel uh, more connected it, it like the the vibe uh, was different in Austin in, in that sense but but I still um I was still able to see world-class professors who were doing like great research and and that kept me going, you know, and, and they were pushing me and I like that approach. I like the approach that in which they push you by giving you an incentives and offering you opportunities. If you do well, they give you more and more opportunities rather than... Um, rather than um, being like negative or, or, or saying to you negative things, it's the other way around. It's just, if you do well, you get benefits, you get involving projects, they, they, they pat at your back and, and say, keep going. I, I really like that approach and I try to do it here. <laughs> okay, um, so, so we'll, we'll go back to the work in Chile in, in a few minutes, but um, so when you were deciding uh, on graduate programs, um, did you only look within the US? Did you look at other countries and, and why Texas Austin? Um, well, yeah, I looked in, in, in the US. Yeah, um, well, but yeah, but to be honest, um, you have to start like negotiating if you want, if, if both of you, in case, in this case, my partner and I wanted to do like share this dream, you have to negotiate some stuff, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so this was a good idea um, because I, in, in my case, uh, Texas and Latin, like uh, Texas and uh, Texas at Austin had this program of Latin American studies because I was not totally confident exactly what I wanted to do. So this would provide, provide me with the opportunity to lurk around and see different programs and take different classes and 
and then really decide uh, what I what I really wanted to do. And it's in in Latin America um, literature. Um, it has the best professors who are experts in, in Latin America in, in social science. So yeah, that was a, a, a great opportunity. So that's that's why um, Austin. And when you were finishing up, um, you know, you did you go, you went back immediately or directly to Chile right after you graduated. Yeah. Yeah. Did you consider staying in the States or working in other countries? How, how was that process? Yeah. Um, yeah, in the beginning, we even considered like living in other Latin American countries. And, and of course, staying there was a, um, a huge possibility. Um, I was there, like I had been there for five or six years at that point. Um, so one possibility was to stay although we were on a fulbright and at that time when you were when you are on a fulbright um you it's hard to get a work uh, permit okay so you can do an opt um you can do some short term uh, job but okay so that was one thing we had known people who could who had navigated and who had stayed um, yeah, but that was one issue. And the other issue is that um, we also wanted to come back. So I wanted to come back and I was, there was this tension and negotiation, even within myself, you know, what we want to do, what I want to do. Um, but I thought that work, I had this goal of coming back to Chile and, and, and and create a hub of of good research in communication that we like that we could create with among many other researchers who or or graduate students who were at that time in 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 the UK or in other parts of Europe or in 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 the US who were who were doing uh, research in communication and media. Um, we wanted and I wanted to come back and, and build that and 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 become a hub of good, of a small but good uh, productive good, uh, productive um, researchers. Uh, yeah, who can say something <laughs> from Latin America. Yeah, so that was um, one of the most important goals. Um, and of course, coming back to your colors, to your context to your place in a way and um, it also lured me so so how did you manage to to build that group because it's true i mean um there are there have been in the past decade an explosion of research coming from chile in, in explosion in a good way so massive growth in quantity and quality and so there are great researchers at your University of Portales, at Católica in Chile, in Santiago, Católica in Valparaíso, Adolfo Ibáñez, Universidad de Chile. So there are at least a dozen um, you know, scholars who are incredibly well published, um, whose international impact is very high. And there wasn't that before, right? 20 years ago, that did not really exist. Everybody who I have in mind are people who are very young um, and still have many decades ahead of them um, 
in terms of research. So, so how did that happen? How did you manage to do that? No, it's not that we did it, but uh, yeah, but um, I think it was like a, there are different things. One, the the government, the government had these great scholarships for people who wanted to pursue graduate studies um, abroad, like masters and PhDs. So that that triggered that many people like not many, but a group of people would uh, get good training, okay? Um, in, both in, in, I would say, mostly Europe and, and, and North America, the US. Um, that was one thing. The other thing um, is that, well, there had been like important communication scholars uh, in the past, in Chile, they had been, but after this, um, Critical mass went and studied and did their training and came back. We started to build this network and and many times we worked together and and we wanted to um, and and we had already uh, been in the in the in the conferences in IMCR or ICA or AJMC in in the case of communication. Um, and also Latin American conferences in communication. And there is an, even a Chilean, now there is a Chilean, um, um, not only conference, but association of communication. Um, so yeah, that all happened pretty much at, at the same time in about eight years ago or 10 years ago. So we started like building networks, having these conferences, uh, publishing together, um, and we did we uh, and we I think we mentored each other in a way all of us. Um, so we pushed us to uh, to send stuff, submit papers to 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 the global conferences and and publish. And once some of them already do it, others follow, and one teach the other ones and. And I think that's how we have done it. Um, I don't know if I have like a, how exactly you do it, but it's pretty much building this community and supporting each other, I would say. It's interesting now. Uh, and having that goal in mind, that, that has been wonderful because the goal was clear. The goal was clear in your mind or in most of your colleagues' minds? In, in my mind, and, and I, I would say even others, and we would talk about it. You would talk about it? Yeah, we would talk about it. That's our goal. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it sounds almost like a social movement in a sense. And <laughs> the academic social movement of communication. Yeah. Yeah, but so, so let me ask you a question then. Um, underlying this, if I understand this correctly, or at least this is what I interpret from, from your narrative, there is like a communitarian ethos um, that is somewhat different from the more individualistic one that uh, prevails in, in North America, US, and even Canada, and also in most places in continental Europe or the UK, right? So it's a different take um, on how to build a national academic community. Am, am I right in interpreting this? Totally. I think it's it's way more collective. Um, we because we know that that each of us by uh, by ourselves 
are nothing, you know? Like there could be like two great scholars who do uh, excellent research, but it's nothing. You need a critical mass because if you be, if you get a critical mass of, of people, um, you can collaborate. So it's been, um, yeah, very collectivist. For example, and just to give you an example, now with Ciclos, this Center for Communication, Literature, and Social Observation, it's a long name, but you know, we wanted to do the acronym of Ciclos. <laughs> um, so in this group, we get like, we are uh, academics uh, within the School of Communication at Diego Portales. Um, from the different schools of the College of Communication. And we're not that many, we're eight, nine, and, but we get together once a month. And, and the idea is to share our um, challenges. It's not just to show what we're doing, but the, the, the perspective that we come from, it's okay, we're gonna show what we're doing, but also from, from the challenges, you know, I'm facing this, how would you, how do you do when you're trying to publish this and you get this review? Um, I'm trying to apply, to apply to this grant, but I'm struggling with the methodological design. What do you think could be more successful or good? Or It's totally uh, collaborative. Um, and that's more formal now, but it had happened informally. Yeah, it also happens that it's a small, so we know each other, you know? So. Um, it's all in the yeah. same city, right? I mean, almost everybody's in Santiago. Many, yeah, but there are good scholars as well in the south, in at Universidad La Frontera. Um, yeah, but yeah, but it's well, it's Chile is very centralized, and that's a problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting cultural difference when it comes to comparing the reality that you describe and the academic reality of. Uh, people in, say, in the States or in England um, or Germany. So how about teaching? Because in, in previous conversations with uh, colleagues who are in Latin America in this podcast, many of them remark that teaching has a different presence in the academic life than when it has in the States. Um, has that been your experience based on your own experience teaching in Chile? experience TA in the States and also talking to colleagues and friends who are in the States. Is that is that also applying in your case? You mean just by teaching or? The role that teaching has, uh, centrality or not centrality. Um, like for instance, you know, some people say that in, in Latin American universities, it, it has more of a central and integral aspect you know, part of the scholarly experience, whereas in the States it's more sort of uh, separated. I mean, something completely different from the world of research and sometimes uh, not given as much attention. Would you say okay. th that is also the case for you? Yeah, I, yeah, I would say that, um, yeah, teaching is important. Um, in my case, I love teaching. Um, I teach classes that I like as well, and and I and the school has respected that, you know, and they and they keep offering me the classes that I that I really like to teach, and I'm good at teaching, I guess. Um, so in that way, they keep me motivated. I cannot say much about other schools, but 
Um, if you have a strong research um, agenda and funds and, and you're publishing, but particularly funds, funded projects, um, they don't overload you with teaching. In my case, I do a two-two, like two classes per semester. Um, and um, yeah, and even now that I'm director, I'm director of Cyclos, they allow me to do like three classes a year. Um, so I think teaching is important, um, but if you build a strong research agenda, um, they also respect that. I suppose in, 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 in Paris University, I don't know if, if all of them, um, but I don't, I, I cannot say from my experience, at least just my experience, that it has been a burden that I cannot do anything else but teaching. If that's the idea, it's, that's not, um, yeah, that hasn't been my case, at least, yeah. Right. Um, and so switching from teaching to research, how do you pick your research topics? Right. I mean, you mentioned, you know, at the beginning, this sort of journey where you sort of built on, you know, each stage, so to speak. And the, so each sta stage sort of stays with you. Right. And it acquires probably a different meaning. But um, how have you chosen the different research topics and sort of how have you sort of uh, put together your research program, so to speak? They, they have been different. I and. I can say that I've been like involved in, I don't know, in my life because they're like big projects. So five or six in which I had to think, okay, what I'm gonna do. Um, the first ones when I was given that may, sometimes a graduate student may be hearing this, when I was a graduate, a graduate student just uh, starting my PhD and I wanted to combine this idea of social policy and inequality, but also digital media because I, I thought that that was really important. Um, I thought, okay, and and I don't, and I didn't have funds, any fund to do research. So I said, um, we are going to explore. I'm going, this was about 2008. Yeah, I'm going to explore inequalities among the connected, and 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 the connected people and college students, and so that's why I first brought my two worlds together, okay? The, about like inequalities and policies and, 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 and communication and digital technologies. So I kept doing, plus other things, but that was one of my main, I kept doing that until my dissertation years. When, my, when I had to propose for my dissertation, I had been doing work on digital inequality and I said, we haven't, like, we know that within families, for example, we know that kids could be uh, different names, digital media brokers or, or change agents within their families and they could bring technologies. Why don't we explore um, that phenomenon? So rather than focusing just on inequalities, let's, let's uh, see how in the day-to-day day -day life someone um, or a group of people in a social system, which could be the house, the household, or it could be um, the school, etc. And um, they could become uh, brokers and mediate 
the technological worlds and the ideas outside and bring them to their homes, particularly in disadvantaged populations. Again, because I like I was um, particularly interested in, in more vulnerable populations in my research in general. Um, so that's how I came up with um, this idea. And I, I, I had the support of Joe Strohar, uh, who was my advisor at that time and who was doing research in digital inequality in Austin. Um, so we started exploring this topic. And then when I was like finishing my, my, my dissertation, I was in a social gathering. So now I'm going to talk about serendipity, you know, that you have to be aware. I was in a social gathering um, in Austin and I met this a Chilean woman who asked me just to, just to get a conversation with me, um, what do you do? So I was trying to explain that I do digital inequality or inequalities on digital media and trying to, I don't know, this is a struggle that academics have that we do have in order to explain to other people what we do. And, and she said, just to engage in a conversation, I guess, I, I work at a telecommunication company and she named me the telecommunication company Chile. And we are doing this program in which we are connecting a, isolated uh, villages uh, and we're providing antennas with isolated villages and I said that's my next after my dissertation that's my next thing I want to go to those villages and see what happened with those people when infrastructure access has been provided and um, do they adopt it or not why yes why no and so I applied that was my first grant and um, so I came back to Chile and that was my first grant and digital inclusion in isolated rural communities when access had been provided. Um, and I spent like the next three or four years uh, doing that. And I realized doing that, that mobile connections was a big deal, that mobile only use was increasingly prevalent. So I wanted to see the implications of mobile only use. And that's how that was my second uh, big um, grant. Um, and now I want to come back to the rural communities after the pandemic, you know, that's what I'm going to do <laughs> and see what happens. So yeah, that's pretty much um, how, did I answer your question? Yes, 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 yes. And so, so then I have a follow-up. So your work is theoretically informed, but you have a very concrete social relevance dimension to your research program, right? Um, yeah. And it is probably grounded in the years that you spent as a reporter covering issues on, on social policy, etc. Have you ever thought about doing policy work yourself? Um, or do you consult for policy agencies? If I, if I, if I have considered doing like policy, being a policy maker myself, or... no. Okay. No, Would no. You? I I prefer to be in the expert consultant um, uh, side of the desktop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I haven't. But yes, and I I like to keep my uh, connections with the Ministry of Agriculture, with the undersecretary under. Under Secretary of Telecommunication, like the Office of Telecommunication, Ministry um, of Education, 
Um, so not just the consultant, but if they want to do anything, a seminar or something, sometimes they ask me to, to share my results. Um, yeah, to keep those connections for me is important. But as, a, as an academic, and I'm totally confident about that. Yeah, I like being an academic. I like having um, approaching this topic from a, when you don't have um, political issues that you have to deal with, uh, coming from more of an, we are not, we all biased, you know, but more from an, uh, I don't, I don't want to say objective, uh, but from an academic point of view, more of an skeptical and see what happens. Um, yeah. So I like the, I like the theoretical work as well. Like when you are trying to problematize and trying to um, use what has been done in the past and what has been proposed theoretically to solve those issues. Yeah. Right. Now, and you've been very, very successful at publishing uh, those problematizations and, and the findings. Um, many of her articles draw from uh, data uh, in Chile. Um, and the most, uh, mostly published in the top journals in English speaking language. So how has that journey been about you know trying to publish in English in the top journals in the field uh, with data from a country less than 20 million population right yeah. um, so how, how has that experience been we know the trick now <laughs> no um is, so there that is, huh? is there a trick well, no, it's not really a trick. It's well, but first, um, I have access thanks to these funds, and um, we have access. I would say, even when you ask me about the Chileans and they have and everything, we do have access to good uh, data. You know, I still have. It's kind of affordable. It's very expensive, but still affordable to do face-to-face -face surveys. Uh, that's going to decrease, of course. But um, so to have like do a panel survey face-to-face, -face, it's 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 really good data. So um, so in that sense, and uh, we have that opportunity. Like we don't have just college samples as I used to have when I didn't have funding and I was in the US and okay, nothing against college samples, you know, because that's, at that point, everything was theory. And now I'm dealing with theory, good data, and and, and in my case, policy implications. So, um, so good data, uh, but it's not that. I would say that, it's it's really answering questions that um, that everyone wants to like or making questions that everyone is making them like coming up with good questions and thinking okay this is important but not just for Chile this is important for Chile in my case but I'm also contributing um, and and contributing to the literature. Uh, the global literature or the knowledge, the global knowledge. And, and coming up with an argument 
uh, or coming up with a question or how I'm going to approach this and make this important, not just for Chileans, but for everyone else, um, has been the main challenge. And I devote a lot of my time in doing that. Yeah, and I would say so. Um, yeah, coming up with a good big question and and then of course justifying uh, Chile and I have a problem with that as well because I think like research and we know that the research uh, it's all context uh, dependent and we all should say why uh, collecting data in the US or in Canada or in Germany or whatever uh, contributes to the literature but justifying the context and explaining the context. We have to do that way more often than I would like. I would like everyone to, to do it. Um, yeah, so um, I would say that coming up with those questions, I spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, and in my, in my publications, in, in everything. Yeah, does that answer? How do you do that? How do you come up with good questions? No, it's not, or like things that but I... Questions that, that would, would yield uh, good research, right? Because I agree with you, it's one of the most difficult things okay. to do. Yeah, so what I'm have going you to... learned? Because you've done it many times and successfully. So what have you learned that works, at least for you? For example, I'm going to like give an example um, with the rural communities with the question about the rural communities. If you think who could be interested in studying when it was 2013 or 14, antennas or internet access, we were worried about social media and content sharing and only political participation. Those were the questions. So how you come up with a question that is interesting even for the Journal of Computer Mediated Communication um, that comes from internet connection in rural communities. So there I thought like now a great amount of people are connected. Um, so there are still communities or groups who are not and I think that we cannot approach them with the same way that we have approached the people who are already connected. I think they are facing very specific challenges um, that we have to know because in order to uh, promote or pursue even further the digital inclusion process, we cannot keep doing the same that we have been doing. Like we reached at, at the point we reach a plateau. So how do we reach? What do we do? What are the challenges of those contexts, of those very, very vulnerable contexts? So that was pretty much like the thought process and the way that I approach it and the way that I problematized. I Now that everyone is connected, we still have some groups. But these groups are like are different because they're lagging well behind. We really need to understand their context and their um, their contextual factors, their meso level factors, their social networks, their and how this isolated context, for example, has permeated their 
individual characteristics of motivations or attitudes. So in that sense, so that's why, for example, I drew from a structuration theory uh, of Anthony Giddens, just to understand the context, the meso level and the individual and how all of them interact. Um, so that's how I approach it. And yeah, and it was useful because I really realized, like I realized how important the isolated context um, was for them um, and, and kept them um, excluded, you know, and what this means. Yeah, so that could be an example. Great, thank you. Now, now you mentioned just a few minutes ago that um, uh, as an author, you know, typically writing uh, with Chilean data, you are routinely asked to contextualize your findings, but you think that request should be made uh, of all authors, right? Working regardless of whether they work data from Chile or from Canada or from Bangladesh. We're doing social science. Yeah, yeah. it's context dependent. Yeah. So, so are there any things that if you had magical powers and were granted one wish about how you'd like for the field of communications and media studies to change um, that you wish for? And is there, is there anything that you did your, your maximum wish about how you'd like uh, for the field to change? Yeah, I, this, this question reminds me of a question that my kids usually do to me which is, which superpowers would you like to have? And, and that's an awesome question. Of course, I would like to have many superpowers. Um, so I would say, and, and I asked, and I answered them, um, one thing that they, 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 they look at me and say, what, are you, what do you mean? I would like to have perspective of history. And now that we are going through this, um, convulsed, agitated times in general, and now I'm going to talk about communication, but in general, I would like to know what this moment means in the long run, you know, what are the changes, what are the changes that are going to remain that are going to change as a, as a society, which ones are not, and what's our position in history, you know, because we know that we are going through drastic changes and so in communication I also would like to have that perspective of history history perspective because we know in communication that well in communication things usually change but in the past 15 years they have been changing like drastically and 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 I would like to have that perspective to see um, and, and, and we're trying to come up, I'm sorry, but I'm, we're trying to come up with, with way of, of explaining these changes and we come with dif different theoretical concepts. And I don't know, just to name a few, just to understand social moments, connective action, affected publics. And when I was working with uh, people from Wisconsin, we came up with the idea of network acknowledgement. We, we are resuscitating all theories as well, like selective exposure, just to try to understand what we are going through. So if I would have a superpower, I would like to have the perspective of history to see what this means in the long run, um, in, in the history of communication, in, in the how the paradigm is changing and 
how can we solve some stuff? Um, what are the things that worked out and did not uh, work out in order to, for example, the things that concern us or concern me, I don't know, the biases in algorithms or, or the digital inequalities in the reception of people, um, what are the best approaches to, to solve this now that the governments are thinking about regulations and, um, and governments around the world are thinking about regulations, how to manage data and how to manage these biases, what things this perspective of history would give me like lessons on how to apply that. Now, going like, if, if you think about like magical power, I would like to have that always. Um, and, and regarding more of, 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 the, of our field and, and what's the position of Latin America in, in the field of communication, of course, I would like for, from, like for people from the global south um, to reach positions of power um, in, in the associations um, that, that are the gatekeepers of, of, of that are the gatekeepers of where the field is going, pretty much. Um, yeah, I think that I would like to add our perspective, our challenges, the things that we have to deal uh, with not being English natives, for example, or having different uh, perspectives on the field. I would like to have that. Um, and, and the other, and the last thing that I would like to have is that, um, Communication is a new field. It's somewhat a newer field uh, compared to sociology, political science, psychology. But now we're becoming important. If you see, for example, the journals, political communication is number one in political science. Information, communication, and society is four in sociology. And I would like for all the other social science to like realize that. I don't know if they have it, but, <laughs> but yeah, I would say that. Excellent. Thank you so much, Teresa. This has been a fascinating conversation. I have learned a lot and, and, and I, I have now many more questions in my mind, but I know you are busy, so I, I let you go. I want to thank you again uh, for uh, sharing your time and wisdom with us. I want to thank all the listeners. Uh, for staying with us to the end and invite everybody to join us uh, for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo. Thank you so much. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.